We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In episode 424 of the Barcelona Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm the Hilton Mahiz Levan, aka Barcelev, and today I've got the good news and the bad news you already know. Barca is finally back, again after that World Cup break. That's the good news. But we have to talk about a draw with that team from Canea as the first result of the year. That's the bad news. But at least Levan, it's good to have club football back. That's for starters. And I find, for me, it definitely keeps me more organized, and I feel almost stable, even though it gets me quite a bit more busy. I feel like for me on the podcast side and the YouTube side and all that stuff, I'm not creating content from scratch because games are actually happening and I actually have something to talk about. So I feel like I'm a little less stir crazy. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. Enjoy it. I'm just happy that Barca is back because, uh, yeah, World Cup is nice and all if you care about those things. But for me, Barcelona is the only football team I really care about. So let's bring it on. Yeah, no disrespect to the Denmark-Tunisia game, but certainly for me, I cared about the final result and the knockouts are exciting for the World Cup. And I care about the U.S., how they're doing, and the the Barca players, how they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, when it was the 42nd minute of that Denmark-Tunisia match, I'm like, oh, I waited four and a half years for this. And no offense, again, either of those teams, but it's it's a knockout competition. It's a different kind kind of game. We even saw in the liverpool Brentford game this afternoon, which is like, there's something a little more wild about club football. Like there are upsets in, in club and in knockout competition in the World Cup, but it's just the club football and competitions are happening so fast and you got to use your full squad. It's whole thing. So anyway, we're going to focus though. And today talk about the 1-1 draw with Espanol. And I thought, Levon, that we have, I'd say a little fun, but we're going to play a little bit of a game called How Concerned Are You? I haven't come up with the jingle yet for it, but Something like, how concerned are you? It would be our audience saying that. So we'll go through the things I saw Kool-Aids were angry about, <laughs> which is most things, but the things that in particular everyone was complaining about after yesterday's match, and we'll discuss how concerning those topics are to us. Sound good? Are you ready to play the game? Yeah, you should have uh, searched uh, how concerned are you soundbite to play every time you ask this question. Yeah, it doesn't sound like, uh, it, would, uh, yeah, man, let's go. It didn't sound like it would catch on, though. It's not like a, a lingo or a press your luck or something like that. No, it's just... Okay, so how concerned are you about the state of refereeing in the Liga? And obviously, we're putting the crown on the head of Mateo Lajos for this one. I don't need to tell you. It's 12 total yellow cards. So go ahead, Levon, take it away. 
I mean, Mateo Loos was actually turning into a good referee the last couple of years uh, because he had a very bad rep, uh, deservedly so, that haunted him so much that people ignored that he was actually quite solid for for a prolonged period of time. But, you know, he followed up those years with little negative incidences with two complete disaster classes, which are the Holland-Argentina mm-hmm. game, in which he pretty much got everything wrong. And the game against Espanyol, which was just ridiculous. Nobody knew what was going on. Jordi Alba didn't even know that he, he was already on a yellow card. None of the players understood why yellow cards were being given. Um, he allowed Xavi to substitute two players in reaction to the Espanyol players being sent off. And after that substitution, he used video refereeing to overrule one of the decisions that he made. It, it was just a, it was a crapshoot. It was completely absurd and v- very upsetting. I'm I'm happy that Xavi did not use it as the, as an excuse. Xavi, the captain, was always full of excuses. Xavi, the coach, is not. So that is something that I'm very happy about. But man, like yeah, the, the refereeing in in La Liga is not good. But yesterday was no, what was it? the 31st? was a new low. It was incredibly bad. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think you and I might disagree later on in the show, but not now. I agree on every one of those points that the state of refereeing in the Liga has, I think, taken a little bit of a step back this season. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that Mateo Lajol is, we'll say, the most famous referee in Spain. The Federation sent him to the World Cup. I mean, FIFA agreed that he's one of Spain's best. And so to have him on such a public stage at the World Cup, to have him I mean, not to say that any Barca-Real Madrid match is a, is a big stage, but he's done a lot of Barca games. He's done a lot of Real Madrid games, Atletico Madrid games. He gets he gets the big games. I mean, he's a, one of the big-time referees. And I, I think the moments in particular where things really went haywire for him, and I, I kind of felt like, you know, he's been in La Liga since 2008, so you and I are very familiar with him. And as I agreed with you, too, about, I think, there was a reputation he built making a lot of mistakes early on in his career, but I think he did, as you said, have a, a string of years where he just got better. Was every result, I mean, was every decision the one that Barca fans would have wanted? No, but I, I think he got things wrong for Barca. He got things wrong for Madrid. He got things wrong for Cadiz. He got things wrong for, you yeah. know, whoever. Uh, and then he also got yeah. most things right and he could handle games. I mean, he's still a bit of an, uh, you know, a drama queen. He, he, he's quick to fly off the yellows. We know that that's his reputation. And so, I think some responsibility does go on the teams where, okay, we have Lahoth, so you know how you know it's already going to be contentious, so you know we have to kind of keep things in check. But there was two moments in particular where I think he'd already lost the match. So by the 14th minute, he warns Ansu. I think it was on a it, it was on a corner, is what it was. It was a corner for Barcelona, and he pulls Ansu and kind of gives him a warning, like, oh, that's strike one. And then about what six minutes later, Ansu clips somebody on on the right wing where he didn't give the yellow, which is good, but he gave him like a strike two at that point. And then by the 26th minute, Ansu brings somebody else down and gets a yellow. And I felt like at that point, he had already kind of established, it wasn't necessarily Ansu's second or third infractions. Because again, I don't think either of those were deserving of the yellow. It was that, I think he'd warned him three times. And that third time that he warned him on the 26th minute was when he also gave the yellow. I thought the corner warning 
was the problem because that to stop the corner, the corner was about to be, if you remember this, the, the corner was about to be played. Mm-hmm. Then he stops play, blows the whistle. It was like a minute and a half where he brings Ansu over, gives him a firm talking to and all this stuff. And I know we didn't see what Ansu was doing, but there's no way. I mean, what was Ansu doing? Was he, did he, you know, did he go up in the stands and punch the player's kids? Like what was happening that took an hour, a minute and a half. It felt like an hour, but a minute and a half to warn Ansu in like the 14th minute of this game that up to that point, I know it's a Darby, but it wasn't like that contentious. But once that happened, now you got four yellows by the 32nd minute. And then, of course, it all pops off. Like, even the red, of course, but all those yellows in the second half pop off when he gives that soft yellow for Pedri after Pedri was the one who'd been fouled. And Pedri was like, why is there not any retribution? Why is there not a card? So Pedri gets a yellow for, I believe it was dissent. It might have been simulation even. And because, like, the Baron Torres yellow for simulation was, like, totally fair. Like, that one was fair. No, 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 none of them were simulations because he actually writes a match report after mm, that. Then what was the parent one? Do you, do you remember? Uh, the, no, 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 no. Yeah, the, talking back to the Descent. referee. Okay, well then they're all um, the same. Yeah, yeah, the the, the, the But the moment that you have a referee who gives out fourteen yellow cards, and well, maybe ten of them are for dissent, then it, it, it's just absurd. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the red card decision that was rescinded. It, I think Cabrera. I mean, I don't. I think that was a red. I think it was a deserved red. Like, I think it's a red because he already gave the red. Like, once you've given that red, I don't see how that is clear and obvious where it gets overturned. Does that make sense? Like, if he hadn't yeah. given it, no, like, I could see how he said, okay, I'm not going to give the red after this. But because he'd already given the red, I don't see how that's rescinded. Me, me neither, because in the slow motion, you saw that there was clear contact. Like, the guy barges into him with his knee at that point, whether it's uh, intentional or not, you can rule it either way, which means that. There's no way that VAR should be able to to overrule it because uh, VAR should only overrule it if something is clearly a mistake. Do I think the red should have been given to begin with? No, it could have not been given. But once given, I don't see how they use VAR to overrule it. Even less so, like I said earlier, when you allow one of the coaches to make two substitutions between you awarding that red card and you reviewing it. I mean, that's just ridiculous. It's absurd. Yep. Yeah. It's absurd, and 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 I also I also don't understand why the guy never left the pitch. It seemed that at that specific moment he was done giving yellow cards to people for dissent, uh, but he let the whole of the Espanyol team walk over him before he went too far, and he did not give anybody any cards for dissent at that moment, which was a little bit weird because what it seems uh, is that what happened because in the in the match report where he um, uh, carded people for dissent he very clearly writes like okay dissent without any threats or insults made so at at that point that kind of gives the impression of you cannot say anything to the referee which is also weird because the moment that that becomes a law it should be the same for everybody and half the half the Espanyol team should have been given a yellow card when they were all protesting the red to Cabrera. Yeah, I think reputation matters so, too. Because like Jordi Alba, those two yellows, you know, I'm going to keep sprinkling the little Amazon documentary stuff that we're kind of learning. I'm not really learning this about Jordi Alba, but I feel like his in every interview Jordi Alba's in, I could see how if he says something in a negative way or disagreed with you, it sounds like he's being an absolute you know, just a nasty guy, right? Like D-I-C-K. Exactly, exactly. It sounds like he's just being a jerk every time he speaks in a way that is not like complimentary uplifting. And I think that is just, it's what, it's what we're learning about. Like not say what I'm learning, but it's just like, I'm like, wow, this is like not a great edit for Jordi Alba. But again, like it's not because you hear what he's saying. He's not like anything like that. Anybody else isn't saying in the documentary or out of the ordinary. It just, he just has this 
presentation that is just like uncomfortable. It's like sandpaper. And I could see how Lahoth uh, hears Jordi Alba and go, because again, that whole, the, when he got that second yellow, it was just a crowd of people, of, of, of Barcelona fit players. So how is it that he picked out what Jordi Alba said? I mean, even the time it took Alba to get over there, I was like, Alba must have said something completely inflammatory beyond what every one of his teammates was saying. But no, it's just that he heard the squirrel, the little chirp chirp of the squirrel, and then not the second yellow comes for Alba because Alba's the one who has that look on his face like he deserves it more than everyone else. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The other thing is that n- neither Alba nor Laos knew that it was his second card, which is what Sergio Ser- Ser- Roberto said mm-hmm. that after the match. That Laos didn't know what this, uh, that um, uh, he was giving him the second yellow. Like he had already like lost the plot himself. And I actually watched those ten minutes in the run up to to this podcast to see what happened. And you can see Laos giving the card, and then usually when when a referee gives a yellow card, the red one immediately follows. But here's just like one or two seconds in between when Laos himself also realizes that it's a red card. And you also see Alba does not react at all to the, to the yellow card either. But then when Alba receives the red card, you see Alba looking at him like, what What the hell is going on? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, it's just ridiculous. Uh, I, I will say, and uh, I think a lot of li- your listeners will not notice, that when whenever Mateo Laos is in an interview or on TV, he seems like a thoroughly likable guy. Yeah, I've gotten that impression too. So, yeah, yeah I, so I can I can say that about mm-hmm. him. But my God, no, it was just terrible. Yeah, I mean, even uh, even the way that that Xavi, the presentation between those two, like I, I had brought up, I had brought up that somebody was like about communication, right? Like, is he communicating properly? And it sounds like he and Xavi actually have a pretty good line of communication. Like the the coaches seem to be fine with him personally, and it's just like him as this this character, this, this referee. So speaking of Xavi though, we're going to pivot because it sounds like, and I know that the aggregators, whoever, who don't like our podcast is going to say that, well, the Barcelona podcast, they're biased because they talked about and blamed the referees for the first 14 or 15 minutes of the show. 
but I do want to now put the the not the ire, but kind of turn our attention to the fact that Barcelona very well should have won that game in the first thirty minutes of the of the competition for a, a number of reasons. They were outplaying Espanyol, and they should have been up to nothing instead of having it be one one. So my next thing, and people, you know, I feel like this is the easier one for us to kind of refute. And I know you and I are going to agree again. But how concerned are you? I have to remember, we are playing a game here. How concerned are you about Xavi's tactics? I'm sorry, who am I to be concerned about Xavi's tactics? Well, it sounds like, well, that's the game. How concerned are you? It sounds like not at all is your answer. No, I'm, no I mean, like, literally, like, who am I mm. to be concerned about Xavi's tactics? I think it was fine. Uh, I think the team, uh, and, and I rewatched most of the match. I thought we played well the first 30 minutes. I thought we, uh, we created, we could have scored. Uh, a lot more. Gavi had a good good chance after a couple of minutes. From that chance came the corner that Alonso scored from. Alonso had an excellent opportunity to score the second, actually. Uh, Rafinha got a good look. Uh, there, there were various moments in the first half where uh, our forwards were being played into positions where there was some space for them to, to do damage. I think the problem was that we dropped the intensity and we did not regain that intensity until the last 10 15 minutes i i also i also think that espanol's goal was an absolute fluke like that penalty was just yeah sure you can call it a penalty there's definitely contact but it was super incidental in a situation that did not really pose any danger so like and and, and that's the only time espanol came even close to to our box. So, you know, are we going to blame Xavi's tactics for this? No. We also had good chances to to close out the match with, with Lewandowski, uh, who had a one-on-one, with Peri, who, who had a shot, with the Christensen header that uh, was saved very well, with Dembele, who had two shots. So, you know, no, I, I, I don't think that Xavi's tactics, this, this match was, uh, was a problem. It's just one of those matches. We're also first in the league. Shall we also blame Xavi's tactics for that? Right, exactly. Well, yeah, we're going to get that in a second. So I think to to agree with you once again that how Barcelona could have scored in this game, the numbers back up. Again, my eye test and the eye test says that Xavi's making the right decisions and doing the right things with the personnel. That At some point, you don't convert when you could convert. And so courtesy friend of the pod, Barca19 stats on Twitter, Barca's XG for the draw against Riot at the start of the season, which I want to remind people, is the only other time that Barcelona have dropped points. Not lost. They have not lost yet in the league this season at home. But the only other time they've dropped points at home was Riot at the start of the season. And they won the XG battle in that game, expected gold, 1.9 to 0.5, or a 1.4 positive advantage there. And against Espanyol, it was 2.3 for Barca, 0.9 for Espanyol. Once again, a plus 1.4. So basically, Barcelona right. and that and that and that and that zero point nine was the fluke exactly. Penalty. So basically, Barcelona yeah. has been at a around a one and a half expected goals higher in every single home match minimum. That was the minimum number, and it's been higher than one point five mm-hmm. in all, obviously all the other matches, which were all victories. And so, to, and to speak yeah. a little of those tactics real quick, I, I don't, I don't, not say I don't know what people expect them to do differently because I think the argument, I mean, we can get really into the the, bar, the bad part of this now, and people obviously. You can't take too seriously those who are going crazy about the squad saying this player can't play for us, this player can't play. For you know what I mean? How Lewandowski and Pedri are the only two that are safe from that kind of criticism. And so for Xavi's tactics against Espanyol, I think he, once again, he got it right. For Diego Martinez, usually, and you've known this for the last decade, 
Espanol generally in this Catalan derby plays at five at the back. They only played with four at the back mm-hmm. because in contrast to the usual five at the back, they've actually had, not say success, but they're not in the relegation zone, even though they're flirting with it. But they've been playing this season under Diego Martinez with a four at the back. And Martinez was not willing to change that for Barcelona, knowing that Barcelona wanted to use the wings. So what Martinez attempted to do was he wanted to defend narrow. So they began by defending quite narrow, did Espanyol, which for Barcelona obviously means you're going to be wide open on the wings. And so we saw a bunch of diagonal balls from Roberto, from Al. I mean, Al was pretty good at hitting those. We saw them from, from De Jong had one or two. Gabi uh, even had one. And so if you're going to be hitting those diagonal balls, that means there's plenty of room to run on the wing for Rafinha in particular because they were overloading the left side. Like we saw last year, same thing again. It's overloading the left side switching the play over to either Rafinha or Nibale, who's a 1v1 winger on the one side, who's elite at going 1v1 situations. But then Espanyol, obviously, as any smart team should do, or what manager is going to do, he adjusted. So then they widened everything a little bit. But that made it harder for Espanyol, which is why their XU is less than one, is because once they widen play to deal with those diagonal balls, then it made it harder for them to play themselves out of pressure because we know what is Barcelona's greatest weakness. It's what Inter showed us. It's playing to the wings. It's, it's having a release valve open on the flanks and then counterattacking Barcelona with 2v2 situations or one or 3v3 situations starting on the flanks. That's how you get out of trouble. That's how you get out of the pressure. But once you widen your own attack, then Barcelona have players set up to once again recollect the ball. And Barcelona, again, for the first 30 minutes, were really good with their pressure and kept turning Espanyol over. So even though Espanyol even had tried to adjust Barcelona and Xavi's tactics, were ready for both situations. And as you said, if they converted, and that's what it comes down to, right? You convert your chances, you win the game, you don't, then you don't. I mean, you, I mean if you have something, I want to, there's a part two of this too. Because then, then people said, well, converting chances and all that stuff, and especially in the last 10 minutes, and you brought up on Twitter, I, know we, I probably know what you're going to respond with this, but how concerned are you about Xavi's ability to motivate his team over the line. And obviously that comes with the constant exhausting narrative that we watch Vida lead against Madrid. Somehow Madrid find a way. They seem to always find a way and Barca don't. And again, that's, that's what the internet tells us, but I not take words out of your mouth, but we know that over the last in 2022, honestly, Barcelona have 34 wins, only four losses in 43 games and 83 total points in a hypothetical 2022 calendar La Liga table. Madrid has 78 points in one less match. So even though there's a feeling in us that says, oh, Madrid have that killer instinct, in the league over the last 12 months, that again, over the course of two seasons, 12 months, Barcelona are the ones who've been finishing games. What do, what do people want Xavi to motivate Ter Stegen to stop that penalty? Because that's literally how Madrid beat Valladolid mm-hmm. by Courtois, mm-hmm. making like monster saves for them. And Ter Stegen is not really that kind of goalkeeper. He'll pull out a good save every now and then. He'll have an amazing game every now and then. He plays the ball well out of the back pretty much always. But, well, it's it's very difficult. We're not in the dressing room. We're not on the training pitch. We don't have that information uh, to know how motivated players are or not. Do I think that they looked flat? Yes, I think that for the last 15 minutes, they they looked kind of flat. I also think that for the first for a good time in the second half, they looked flat. At the same time, when you look at the numbers, uh, Barcelona is the, is the team that uh, recovers most balls in the opponent's half, which does not point towards players not willing to work hard. Yep. You know, because we we recover more balls in the opponent's half than than anybody than any other team in the league. I think that some players have confidence issues. Uh, Ansu 
is not firing on all cylinders. This has been going on for a while now. Also, Rafinha is not doing what people expected that he would be doing based on all the YouTube videos that all of us have been watching from Rafinha. Okay, because let's be honest, none of us or very few of us watched 90 minutes uh, of, uh, of Leeds matches on the regular. I mean, we had the midfield that everybody wants. I thought Frankie played quite well. I thought Pedri played as poor as I've seen him. But I also think that Pedri plays too many matches. So that is not a motivational issue. That is more of a, hey, you know, we cannot play without this guy issue. Mm-hmm. Who else? I, I thought that Alonso actually had a really good match. Not just his goal, but he was really solid in, in, in defense as well. But he was either unlucky or clumsy on that penalty, however you want to call it. Uh, I thought Jordi Alba played reasonably well, although I do think that he should have ideally avoided that yellow card. But then again, you know, it was the Matteo Laos show, so those yellow cards were maybe unavoidable. Yeah, no, I, I don't think we can point to anyone and say, hey, they were not motivated. I mean, I think people bring it up too, and to, to once again go back to the Amazon documentary about they're, again, psychoanalyzing the little that we saw into these locker rooms over the course of the last three and a half seasons while they were filming that. Like, so obviously the, the introduction of Kike Setien is not showing well on him. The, the inability to command that room in that first conversation seemed to dictate the way that it turned out for him. And so people are trying to extrapolate. I haven't watched that. Yet. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, for people like you and I who are on the pulse of the team every single day, I, I turned to my wife halfway through the third episode and I was like, I don't think I've learned a single thing. Like if anything, I'm like trying to kind of judge vibes. Like you get to know Ansu a little bit better, which is nice. But other than that, like you don't really garner anything. Like it is, it is nice to see, like if anything for me, it's validating because when Xavi first got his start coming over from Al Saad and I did that Xavi, what, what are his tactics going to be at Barcelona? For me, it's validating because the things I hear him yelling in training is exactly what he promised he would do at Al Saad. <laughs> and then I said that he would try to do at Barcelona. So if anything, it's validating to like me saying, oh, I, care and think about this team too much at least i know at least i know what xavi's trying to do here and i was right that that's what he's trying to do didn't he play three at the back in el salto it was yeah but it's a philosophy there's a principles of like how he (laughs) wants to press and things like that like it's about using more width than we saw from kuman and and set the end it was like again very simple things you know and then things that we know about what you do with possession and positional play and stuff that but yeah i mean it sounds Mm -hmm. like again i knew that you and i were going to agree on the xavi point here because obviously if Xavi's going to do all that winning, one lack of or what drop points are always going to create some kind of inflammatory response. We know that's the case, especially when it brings Madrid back level in, in the Liga table. But okay, so the, the next two, uh, the three or three things that we've kind of already touched on and you touched on was how concerned are you about Ansu Fati? And I think of all the ones on our list, this is the first actual real one that we have to answer here. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm quite concerned. When, when I was in the stadium, and this is the first time that uh, I actually made that comparison. Bojan popped up in my head, and I thought, oh my God, Bojan also scored goals for Barca when he was 16 years old. But then it all went to all went to ruins. Now, the situation was not exactly the same because Bojan had anxiety issues, and you know the, the, the pressure of the top game was just too much for him. I don't know if that is what is happening to Ansu. I think people are using the, the crutch, saying that it is his knee, but... You know, we've talked about this before. Um, to me, I, I don't think he looks slow. And when Anzu was really was playing really well 
it was never because he was faster than everybody else. It was just because he had really, really, really good timing, a really good sense of uh, of where to be. And, and he had that killer instinct as soon as he, he had the ball. This is not something that, you know, I don't see him being half a second slow or half a step late. I just think his, his timing is off. Uh, his confidence is off. I also think, and this is something that, you know, I was always against us getting Haaland because of what that would mean for Ansu. And I think maybe Lewandowski being such a focal point of the attack creates uh, less space for for Ansu to actually actually operate in. Because the years before when Ansu played really well, I think, well, no, there was one year when, when Luis Suarez was playing as a nine and Ansu already broke through. So that kind of punches holes in my theory. Uh, well, I mean, yes um, and no, because but but, well, but, the, but the two the two seasons after that, there wasn't really a nine. So yeah, I mean, not even necessarily because Suarez was a bit. I would have to look at a real heat map, but Suarez was a bit more able, not able, but more willing to, especially in the attack, to go out to the wing and allow space for Ansu to come into. Lewandowski occasionally comes to the wing, but not often. Like very rarely do they switch that that the left winger and the center forward. Usually, Lewandowski is occupying those center backs. I mean, that, He's more of a target exactly. man, Lewandowski. Um, and yeah. I think, too, I mean, a huge part of this, too, is the way, again, the right winger was Messi or somebody else. Because Messi also, with that gravity, like coming over, he wasn't necessarily setting up in the box. Messi was dribbling into the box, coming into the box, which leaves, as you said, Ansu. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then, then again, when Ansu plays with Spain, you know, Spain don't have a true nine. And Ansu is not really doing as well uh, for Spain either. So it, it's it's a weird one. All that we can do is hope for the best. Mm-hmm. I think there's the, there's, there's the usual assortment of idiots on, on, on Twitter that are already talking about, how, hey, let's sell him. Like, you know, give him two, three seasons, however long he needs until his contract runs out. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that the club needs to make money on Ansu because he's still incredibly young and he still has an incredible potential. Uh, and, and I hope that we will see it. I think in general, there are, there are a lot of players like uh, even Ferran Torres. He's still 22 years old. So, you know, I, I think about Chelsea letting Mohamed Salah go. I think about Chelsea letting Kevin De Bruyne go and how good those players eventually became. I'm not saying that Ferran Torres will become a Mohamed Salah. But what people need to understand is that not everybody at 22 years old is going to be as good as Messi was when he was 22 years old, or as good as Pedri was when he was 18 years old, or as good as Mbappe was when he was 22 years old. No, some some players actually become really, really, really good when they hit what was usually uh, considered to be the prime for a footballer, 25, 26, 27 years old. So I, I don't think that there's a reason for us to be overly critical with uh, with all of these players that are still very young. Yeah, I think in the case of Ansu, where I tend to err uh, with that concern is exactly what you said. I think there's a difference between ability and decisions. And again, not to go back to the numbers here, but even in that game, the, the numbers tell you that it's not that he cannot do something. It's that he's not making the choices to even try. So it's like as far as like what he did so well early on was that he would drive. He wasn't necessarily a dribbler, but he would he could drive forward. He could take a player on that he needed to get past, right? He's not going to dribble through six, but he could take a player on, on the wing, be strong on that side, then come inside, not even with the ball, but without the ball as well with his movement, just get into great positions and ultimately also score goals. 
what we're seeing now is a player that is kind of, uh, I mean, he's a bit more conservative with the ball. He was, I, I think he was uncharacteristically untidy in that game. We're going to get to Pedri next. And Pedri was the same way. I think they were just the two of them, that partnership. I would agree with you. I want to remind people first that they've still only played less than 30 games total together, Pedri and Atsu, which is absurd. But yeah, because of their injuries throughout their early young careers, they were both just untidy in a way that you've, I don't think I've ever seen together. And you're right. It's not even that the knee physically the problem because the club has set out and given words over the break that Antu will be getting a more prominent role in the second half of the season. And even though he had a lackluster World Cup, Xavi started him right away, put him right in the starting lineup. And <laughs> so that tells you the club is meaning what they say that, hey, Antu is going to be important for us. And in that game, even he was only dis- uh, dispossessed eight times. And I always say that, like, for wingers, if you're dispossessed from 10 to 14 times, especially Dembele, like that's something you can live with. It's when Dembele's like 17 to 20, where you go, that's a little bit too much. Like he's got a hold of the ball Mm because it means some of those are going to be in bad spots, but he was only dispossessed eight times. He had the two shots off target, lost two of his nine goals. They they gave him the ball 10 times. Exactly. It's still not great. Yeah. And then even (laughs) on the dribbles, most significantly, he was only 0 for 1 on his dribble attempts. It tells us like he's not, he wasn't attempting to drive at anybody. He wasn't attempting to go at anybody 1v1 in those situations. But what what uh, what are his historical stats for dribbling? Because dribbling past players, like you know, yeah, he occasionally dribbled past players, but it's not the main part no, of his game. His his dribbles. I think and... people are viewing him right as like this Dembele or Rafinha, whatever. He he even at his peak was dribbling half or a third of the times that they do per match. It's it's like what is and I, I we go back to the tactics of Xavi. Whether it's Ansu, whether it's Farron, whoever's on that left wing. Their job, like you can, you have to understand their job is not to be the complete balance to the right wing on the other side. The right winger's job in Xavi's system, at least the way that the squad is constructed at the moment, with a left back even that gets a bit more forward involved in attack, whether it's Balde or whether it's Jordi Alba. Uh, it was, and that's why Marcus Alonso isn't playing left back at all. The left back gets forward a bit more, overlaps with whoever left winger is. They overload numerically that left side. Then you cross it over to the right side for the dribbly right winger, and he goes to town. That's why when you put Ferran Torres on the right side, it's Armageddon. It does not work. It's like throwing a pebble into a volcano. It just, it's not going to happen. Well, sorry, that, that's the op- terrible. It's actually the opposite of that because <laughs> something actually does happen if you throw a rock into a volcano. But you get the point. That's not what Ansu's job is. My concern for Ansu is, it's, it's not say pretty high. I said it was code orange yesterday or, or with my match review, and I do kind of stick to that. I'm code orange because we have seen Clubs like Barcelona, not necessarily Barcelona, but clubs like Barcelona. You mentioned Chelsea. When you have a young player like this who looks lost, the club, especially where Barcelona financially is at the moment, there is a thing where they go, "Uh, what are we going to do for money? This player is lost to us. We have to recoup something. And you hope that it's not Ansu, because yes, Ansu is like, I wonder what would we be doing if Ansu wasn't from the academy? If and Because right now he re-signed that new contract on wages not be fitting an academy player anymore. He is now on a actual first team big big boy deal and expected to give you big boy results. So how long is the club yeah. going to be patient with their financial difficulties with Anzu? I agree with you that they should just stick it out. But I think there is a there is a real concern for me that the club is going to get a little antsy and saying, well, we're sitting on our hands. We need a big deal to be made. If Frankie doesn't want to leave and we have to sell somebody, and you know what I mean, then Anzu winds up being one of those names that is just at least thrown out into conversations and things like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about his but, future because I also know, again, I, I do work with players. I coached, I play actively myself. And I can tell you that there are days that I'll get in the car and I'll say, I personally, as a player was not assertive enough. And that's one of my issues as a player. So I, I, I really do like empathize and feel for, for onto, like you can see it in his eyes. T- where sometimes where 
He used to be able to do something. He knows he could do it. And there are days when he's just not being assertive. And if he's not going to be assertive, I know those days. I know I fail because it's not that I haven't, it's not that I haven't done well. It's that I haven't done the thing that I would expect myself to do. So I haven't been to my level. Again, I haven't hurt anybody. I haven't hurt the team, but my lack of assert assertiveness is like denied my team and denied me the full potential that day. And I, I think you see that in Ansu. It's the same thing. It's just like, he just, he's not being assertive in certain ways. And I mean, it could even be as little as something as simple as not being as tidy as he normally is with the ball. Like he's not amazing. He's not a technical wizard, but his link up play is much better than what we saw yesterday and what we saw at the World Cup too. Yeah, but also like there was a play, uh, I think in the 10th minute where he receives the ball. Uh, he, he just has one defender in front of him. He doesn't often dribble past defenders, but he, he's quick enough to make space for his shot. Mm -hmm. And he did. He created space for the shot and he just scuffs it. And the shot goes like two, three yards wide. Whereas the answer that we used to know would create the same space for that same shot. And he would just bury, bury it. Now, why this is happening, I can't explain. In the same way that I cannot explain how uh, he used to score every ball that he touched. His goal rate. I mean, we, we, you spoke, we spoke that last year. His goal rate before, from the age of 16 to 18, was, what was it, the second highest of any 16 to 18-year-old in history? I think it was like just Michael Owen had the only higher goal rate than Ansu Fati from 16 to 18. So, yeah, it was like, it was not to say that it was impossible to keep that up, but he would be an all-time, like he would, we'd all be looking at him as in the same caliber as Mbappe, and he's four years younger, but as Mbappe and Holland yeah. already. We, that's the class we talked yeah, about yeah, if he had that goal rate this year. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No doubt. Uh, and, and, and that's also why you don't, you don't sell Ansu Fati when he's 20 years old or 21 years old or 22 years old or 23 years old. If, if he still plays like this when he's 25, then okay, just don't renew him. Yeah. Or, or renew him on a low deal for him to be a squad player. Yeah, because at that point, he's well, a player that uh, needs something, right? If he's still like this at 25, it's not like he's going to land somewhere else. Like, it's not like he's going to land on his feet. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a hard yeah. landing. Yeah. Else. No, how old is he? He's 20 now, right? If he's still like this when he's 23, yeah. 24, then, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll be worried. And I'm already worried now, of course. Right. But, you know, hey... It, it is what it is. And uh, often in life, especially in sports, it is what it is. And it is not what we would like it to be. Yep. All right. So speaking of Antu and future stars and things, Pedri, I think, is our last topic to talk about with the, the Espanol game. And this could be a quick one, too. Obviously, you know, just the case of debate, I am very, 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 very concerned about Pedri and where he's receiving the ball, of course, because Pedri yesterday, now Levon, strap in for this one, he actually turned the ball over 12 times which is the highest and <laughs> yeah. most that he turned the ball over in any game in the league of this season. And that yeah. is three to five times more than usual this season. So of course, World Cup and, and picking the ball up so deep. I'm so, 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 so worried about Pedri. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm not, I'm not worried. About, I'm not. Not saying I'm not worried about Pedri, I think. But structurally, I, I'm not worried about where Pedri is receiving the ball. You know, because I think here in the US, you know, the ESPN guys kept going over and over and saying, Pedri has zero assists in the Liga. And they kept bringing that up as like, that's a point of concern that Pedri has zero assists in the Liga. Mm -hmm. But then they were not drawing attention to the fact that Pedri, his heat map this season keeps going farther and farther back. So I think the real question we're asking for Pedri now is not, I'm not worried that he's receiving the ball where he is. I'm, because especially with, with Frankie de Young starting with him, Frankie de Young is going to get forward 
and dribble into those positions a bit more. And then so Pedri's going to cover for him. And then when they recycle the ball, he's going to be starting in a deeper position. So he's not going to deliver the final third ball that people expect him to and get that assist that people want him to and expect him to be. You know, he's not the attacking midfielder. He is kind of almost a box-to-box midfielder, if anything. But I think if you have Pedri receiving the ball a little deeper because you're finding a succession plan or, or and figuring out how to fit Gabby and Pedri and De Young on the field together, I'm going to live with that. Like I'm, I'm not that concerned about where he's picking the ball up because of the the changes that are needing to be made when you really are actually moving on from this one guy who's sitting in the same spot as a pivot all the time, and that's Busquets. I'm of two minds here. Uh, on on one mind, even. Last season, it was already clear that I think last season maybe Gavi even had more more assists than than Pedri, in a lot less playing time. Although Pedri was injured also for some some, some time, but per ninety minutes, mm-hmm. I imagine Gavi had more assists because I remember a lot more assists from Gavi. Even though Pedri is the more consistent passer, and Pedri has more pausa, Gavi was the guy who somehow always came up with with assists. I also think that Gavi is maybe a bit more of an aggressive goal threat. Then, then again, Pedri has more goals. Pedri started adding, Pedri started adding scoring to his yeah. game last season. And at, at the beginning of this season, it seemed that Pedri and Lewandowski were connecting extremely well together. So maybe it's more that you don't want Gavi in the center of the pitch. And that's why Pedri is playing in the center of the pitch. I'm saying this trying to think of games in which Gavi really played that center of the pitch role. Can you think of any? I think the Villarreal game, the 4 nothing, was like the only one that comes to mind where he was quite involved. It, and they were almost, it was almost a 1-2-3 where De Jong was the deepest. Mm-hmm. Pedri was basically in this middle. So instead of thinking of that, think of the, the pivot and then the two interiors, it was actually like a defensive midfielder. And I do a lot of college soccer, so I see this a lot where you see basically this, what, what is it called, like a stopper, right? And then the, the, the midfielder in the middle that's literally just a center midfielder and then an attacking midfielder. And Gabi right. basically played as the attacking midfielder diagonally over like to the right shoulder of Pedri. And then Frankie Young was in the core behind both of them. Right. So, I mean, in the three-man midfield, I, either you have two holding mids of which one goes forward more often. So you, you have like two in the back and one forms a triangle mm-hmm. up top. But usually in Barcelona, it's the reverse. You have one holding mid and two are up top. But of those two on top, there's always one who is a bit more focused on controlling the game and the other who's a bit more focused on, on getting into forward positions. So a quick analogy, this used to be Busquets as a holding mid, Xavi as the controlling exactly. midfielder, and, 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 and Iniesta, Iniesta is the more creative midfielder. Well, I think the reason is that Perry does not play as an attacking midfielder is Gavi does not have the positional sense mm-hmm. that that he has and not only does he not have the positional sense but as an attacking midfielder Gavi has more of a license to to press wildly yeah. and and aggressively without giving up as much vulnerability in the back with the space that he would leave behind when 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 he does Which I want to add to, which I want to add uh, to that point that why I just discussed about Xavi's tactics coming in Xavi said that he wanted one of those high interiors to be basically that free roaming presser. And that's why Gabi okay. is so favored by Shop. Oh, Shabi admitted that coming in that the striker and the high interior, the whatever the right high interior is, are the two that are going to press in, in such a fashion in those spaces on the field. 
So again, coming in, Xavi like said that that mm-hmm. was what he was going to do. And I think... The, okay, I did not know that he said that, but yeah. And I think to the Pedri point... That's what I said. To the Pedri yeah. point too, I was going to bring that up about Xavi. That's like, we have to like rejig our brains to say, Pedri, we always thought, oh, that's Iniesta 2.0. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And you're right. The position, the role he plays in this coveted Barcelona midfield three is the Xavi role at this point, at this juncture. Mm-hmm. And that's what's needed of him. And that's, again, why I praise Pedri so much because Pedri can make us believe that he was the second coming of Iniesta and he can make us believe he's the second coming of Xavi depending on where Xavi needs to use him. Now, he again, but he's... he's yeah. not... and, and, and I also remember that Kuman played him as a pivot once. And he did exactly, well. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and so is he excelling in any of those spots? So no, he's like not becoming Xavier Nesterbu because whatever. But at this point, the team is still, as you notice, like Frank Kessier is just sitting there on the sideline watching. Like this Barcelona midfield, even is still "quote unquote" incomplete. Like you still have Busquets in it until, in theory, that chapter is closed. Like until he moves on, and the midfield has five different players who look a bit different, who all have roles, who all have positions in the team. Then I, I don't think with confidence we can fully say. Where Sha- I mean, where Pedri can be, other than the fact that Xavi needs Pedri on the field, like that's what we know, doing whatever he needs to do. So, all right. Last thing, speaking of the Barcelona midfield, hopefully in the future, but uh, this is some bad news. How concerned are we about Nico Gonzalez, who had surgery and a three-month layoff now at Valencia after a foot injury, came in at uh, was starting against Villarreal the few days ago as the pivot instead of Hugo Guillemot, who started on the bench. And I had said in that lone watch, I kind of feel like I jinxed Nico even. I said it wasn't going great, but it also wasn't going terribly. Like there was five midfielders, three of which were owned by Valencia, two are on loan in that Valencia midfield, all of which are 22 years or younger. So Catuso is kind of just trying to use these inexperienced players and trying to figure out what combinations he has that work best. And for Nico, if, if Guillemot played, he played as a pivot. And Nico had to play as an interior. And if Guillemot wasn't playing on the bench, then Nico would start as a pivot. So he was basically a backup interior and he was the backup pivot. That's basically what he was in that five man midfield. He was a backup on both spots and it wasn't necessarily a, a great loan so far, but he had a role. He just like Abde, he had a role. He was getting minutes, getting some time. I don't think he was really like progressing as a player. He wasn't becoming who Kool-Aid's obviously are going to push him and pressure him to expect him to be. But at least it was something that was maybe a foot in the right direction. Again, sadly, no pun intended, but now this foot injury is going to keep him out for three months, which, Again, for Nico, he's gonna be—he's twenty-one. He's gonna be twenty-two. I, I mean, at what point do we get concerned about Nico? I think I think I'm about one more year away from saying. I mean, because at this point, he's gone from maybe he's a part of that. Unfortunately for him, he came up with Gabi, so I think the expectations like oh, these new bloods coming in, and he played a lot on Akuman, but Nico is now looking more like the level of a, a bench player at Barca potentially, and that's if things go right for him. Like, what's gonna happen with Nico? I mean. Um, we could really use Nico on the bench. I think w- w- one of the things that people don't realize is that we don't have a lot of midfielders. We have Frankie, Gavi, and Pedri, who I believe should be our starting three. We have Busquets, who is still a lot better than people give him credit for. We have Kessie, who can hardly play, who can hardly receive a football. Yeah, which is insane after watching um, Milan, but yep. And then you have Pablo Torre. Which... <laughs> And then we have we have Pablo Torre who received like one game against I don't even remember which Eastern European country that team was Victor, from. Victor uh, Pilsen, Czech from Czech Republic. Right against Victor Pilsen. And he scored a goal. Um, he scored a goal, but he also well, some people say he looked good. 
Positionally, yeah. Positionally, I thought he was okay. I I thought he was okay in flashes, and he was also poor in mm -hmm. flashes. But what is beyond the doubt is that he was not getting the minutes that uh, a lot of people were hoping for when when we signed him. So and and that's it. And then in Barca B, we have a 15 year old kid who everybody talks about. Well, no, no, no. Yamal's at uh, the U19. Uh, he's 16. He's 15, yes. He's, he's 15 and he's at the, uh, he's at the yeah. U19s. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He's 15. Yeah, with the u He's not even a midfielder. He's a winger. So, I mean, there's there's no, to, to that point, there is no midfielder. Okay, so there's no it was, midfielder. It was Gabi. Like, Gabi oh. was that generational midfielder that yeah. was coming. And he's already there. So... so so right now we have six midfielders, of which one is um, of which one is Kessie, who I hope will turn things around, but he has shown no signs whatsoever. It's still early. Yeah, now. second half cannot be as bad as it was. You know, Again, he, the optimism is that he, a new player does take time to adjust to a system. And what's the hardest part especially, of especially yeah. especially a midfielder with his specific attributes. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that there is still hope. But you know, it's not it's not a given. And Pablo Torres, who seems to not be ready. So we only really have four midfielders then. Of these four mid midfielders, Perry cannot play all the time. Gavi is only eighteen. Busquets is already thirty-four. Like we're incredibly short in midfield. So l losing losing Nico Gonzalez to Valencia a couple of days before they decided that hey, let's sell Pjanic was incredibly unfortunate. Mm -hmm. And I I understand and I, I agree that even after we uh, we tell Nico that it's uh, yeah fine go on loan in Valencia to get Chavez uh, to get Pjanic's salary off the books was very important for the club. So you know there I'm not complaining about it. But what I am saying is that Nico would have gotten a lot of minutes had he stayed. Yep because and it and it, and and it is a it's a loss. It's a tremendous loss for both the club and for the player that he left to Valencia. Yeah, yeah. As I said, I would not. That loan has not been a failure. Like we've seen, we've seen Barcelona players fail on loan. I would not. I was not giving that Valencia loan a failure, but it also was not like an overwhelming success. It was very much like a kick the can down the road. Is he a better player? Is he not? I mean, the second half of the season, I think, would have been at Valencia something useful for him, some useful time. But anyway, mm -hmm. as far as how concerned are we about Intercity? Well, we're going to end the podcast here because I don't think Levon and I, Intercity, I had no disrespect Levon to Intercity, but this podcast has existed two months longer than Intercity has existed. So I'm not that afraid of a, of a, of a club that I know has existed longer than this mess of a podcast has existed. But Intercity inner, inner sounds like the name that you would give, uh, give a high-speed train. Which in the U.S. I would I would love to hear, but uh, you don't want to hear me talk about infrastructure and trains in the U.S. Not not happening. But anyway, so okay, so I'll wrap it up. I think that means it's the end. Yeah, one more point by Levon. Uh, how concerned are you about uh, Espanol denouncing us for incorrectly lining up against them two days ago? Zero, because they agreed to the the court decision that like if the court if it sounded like the court was willing to suspend Lewandowski's. I mean, he still can be banned for three matches, but it sounded like they it, they did. You don't play the match if you agree to the court. Like they should have processed it from the start. Like by having by actually playing the match, then it's basically an admittance like that we agree that we agree that he could have played. Like what would they? I mean, that's what I mean. I mean, no. I, why would they just? No, that's either? not no no no. That's not true. Cadiz played against uh, Madrid 
in that Copa game where they um, uh, lined up, uh, what was his name, the Russian guy? Yeah. Uh, two, two, three seasons ago. That was like five seasons ago, even. That was a long time ago. Five, five seasons ago, yeah. but but then they turned it into a three three nil loss. Yeah. Uh, I I think the whole, I think the whole thing is ridiculous. I think first of all, I think the the three match ban was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But then I also think it is ridiculous that Barcelona recurs to uh, a regular court. Like I don't think that a non-sports body should have any decision power yeah. over over a sportsman. That, that that's absurd to me. Like you're gonna end up with a judge who doesn't even like football, who could care less about football, who never watches football, who has no idea of football culture, to to decide on things that happen on a football pitch. That's ridiculous. Then you know that that means that the next time that somebody gets elbowed in the face, I'm gonna take it to a regular court and uh, request that that guy be arrested for assault. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's absurd. You don't take this to a regular court. But I also think that once this decision was made by the court, and the stay was expe- uh, was uh, accepted by the football authorities, that it's, that it's ridiculous for Espanol to to denounce us. I mean, that's just a shit. Yeah, show. I mean, that's that's the the Espanol Barcelona rivalry there for you. That it happens more off the field than on it now. That's just this bureaucracy of of <laughs> middle of a of a league at the moment. So yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, well, you can get frustrated about Barcelona, but again, they still lead the, t- the top of the Liga table, and the Liga may not be as strong, or the refereeing, and all, you know, it's it's not just Barcelona's having trouble in Spain, it's it's a lot of different teams. But anyway, so that'll wrap up edition edition of the show again. We've got another one coming in on Thursday, because of the Copa del Rey match, where I'm hoping on Thursday I'll be singing the praises of, of Barca athletic players who likely are going to get a chance, and I don't want to see Pedri on the field against Intercity and anything like that. I think the Barca Athletic players can handle that. But again, that'll wrap up another in the show. Follow him on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Close Facebook group, Patreon, YouTube. We also have a TikTok. That's a big 2023 where I, I, I not say I pushed against it, but I got enough comments and enough people of a younger generation than me said, hey, you, you really need to be in this space. So we're now on TikTok with some of these some of these videos. So in case you missed something or missed a highlight, you can check us out on TikTok over there, the Barcelona pod as well. So thanks so much for listening to the show, though. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon in the Forza Barca. All right, Forza Barca, guys. Take care. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.